Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you're walking along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as they said, but they didn't see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going to go on, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. (laughs) They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They They were saying, the Lord has risen, and he's appeared to Simon. And then these two told the eleven what happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. We hear the voice of God in these words. Thanks be to God. So, good morning. On this fourth Sunday of Easter, it's still Easter in the text. It's still Easter. It's still Easter Day. Um, Some of you know this already, some don't, but there's actually 50 days in the Easter season, so it's not just like one and done on Easter Sunday. There's actually like then 50 more days, seven weeks. Um, On the church calendar, it's the longest calendar Um, It's the longest season on the church calendar, second only to ordinary time, which is like summer, you know. Um, And every Sunday, of course, is considered a little Easter, uh, where, you know, we have a resurrection moment. And so this series that we're in, this is the second week, I guess, or third if you count Easter Sunday. This is our Easter series, and we're given another resurrection story. And not just another resurrection story, but several in one story. If you noticed, um, it started with, of course, the two, Road to Emmaus. Then they reference the Easter story, the women at the tomb. And then at the end of the story, they're back with the 11, and they're talking about how Simon saw Jesus. And so there's all these Easter stories in one Easter story, and now we're talking about it in the season of Easter. Cool, huh? Uh, (laughs) But I really like it, because it's like, Slow down, 
don't rush past Easter. Let's root ourselves in this season. This is a season of faith cultivation and faith nourishment. That feels good, right? And so our series we're in is called Spring Cleaning, subtitle, Nurturing the Love, Loss, and New Life in Our Faith Cycles. That sounds nice, right? You're like, y'all let that simmer. Like, we think about these things. So we chose this. I was um, with uh, Brittany and David, and, and we really, like, workshopped this idea because we want to be mindful that while we are united in a sense of, like, faith community here, while there is some unity in that here, there never needs to be uniformity. Like, we're not in the same season of life. We're not all on the exact same timelines. We don't share all of the same beliefs. And even if we have similar modes of engaging faith, we're not in the exact same places on our journeys. And that's okay. We can try and speak to everyone at once, which is kind of what we do on Sundays, um, but we're not the same. And so in this series, we want to honor that, that truth. We want to acknowledge it while still trying our best to tend to our various needs um, and seasons. So as I considered this series and what my topic might be, what I might zone in on, I kept coming back to this question. This is, if you want to tune out after this, I guess that's fine. But like, here's the question. Take, let it take you through your week. Like, ponder it. Write some poetry about it later. Um, but here's the question. What would our faith experiences look like? What would your faith experience look like if you approached it with a consistent posture of compassion and non-judgment. What would your faith experience look like if you approached it with a consistent posture of compassion and non-judgment toward yourself, but also toward others? One way I think we would be impacted is that we would be freed from the need to compare. How would your internal landscape flourish without that death grip of comparison? How might your relationships grow and thrive without the pressure to compare here or anywhere? We can be people who make gracious room within ourselves and around us, Room for the spiritual practices of compassion and non-judgment to take root and flourish. Another way we could be impacted, we could be free from the need to micromanage or control others in how they engage faith, belief, and practice. When we can really do that as a community, everyone gets to be honest and authentic. We don't all believe the same things. You know, we have the loudest voices in this community, just like in any other context. But there's a lot of nuance and spectrum of belief in this room. And all of these people in here, all of us, deserve to feel like we can show up authentically and be ourselves and not be judged for it or not, you know, be comparing all the time. And that can only happen if we are each consistently committing to not micromanage or control how other people engage their faith. It starts with us.
So when we do all this, what do we do? We stop putting barriers and boxes around God. Yay! <laughs> that sounds awesome. I think we can do this. I think we can be people of faith who honor each season we're in ourselves, and we can be people of faith who bear witness, holy witness to the seasons and cycles of faith that our various community members are in as well. When we do this, we realize there are many beginnings and many ends. There's many deaths, many lives lived, and many resurrection stories. Our own experience of faith and understanding of faith becomes more expansive when we do this, more generous. And our capacity to consistently approach others and ourselves with compassion and non-judgment increases. So I think when we become aware of the cycles of faith, we can begin to honor them just as they are because our belonging is no longer tied to whoever we think we need to be or whatever we think we need to believe. We're just honoring the cycles here. I love that there are multiple versions of the same story um, at the gravesite. There's multiple versions of the Easter story and, you know, the different gospels. And of course, endless resurrection stories both told and referenced in our sacred text. Because in our faith cycles, of course, I just said, there's many resurrection stories as well. There's life, death, resurrection. There's hope. There's new perspective. There's new evolution over and over and over and over again. And our faith cycles aren't simply cycles of belief either. They're informed by our experiences, by the experiences of our loved ones. They're shaped by our pains and our losses and our traumas and our fears. They're also shaped by our joys and our inner and outer resources and so on. All these things shape our image of God in our head and then how we kind of believe and then express those beliefs. And so I love that there are so many resurrection stories because for me it's just more proof that from the beginning we were always going to see the story different. We were always going to interpret it differently, share it differently, live it differently. And it reminds us that like those two on the road to Emmaus, we're also on this road together. We're moving towards something together. And yet this journey is not linear at all. I think the fact that we have so often imagined our faith journeys as linear has been a problem and is a problem. You know, we see this start line and this finish line. We see this beginning and this ending. We see this like becoming and then suddenly arriving. And that's not how it is at all, right? So I like to imagine our journeying together. I like to imagine a labyrinth. Remember? Did you see that? Did you see how I tied that together? Um, on a labyrinth, who, who, who else has been on a labyrinth or is at least familiar? On a labyrinth, we're moving toward the center, yes, but we're doing this over and over again. We're beginning again. We're starting over many times throughout our lives. We go into the center. We go out. We go in. You know what I mean? We step off the path sometimes. And I'm saying maybe in all of our ridding, all of our burning down, <laughs> we should pluck from our consciousness the image of a straight road and replace it with the twists and turns of a labyrinth. 
I have memories of walking a labyrinth with our community. Um, we used to do retreats. Oh, man, those were good. And we've walked some labyrinths in community together, and our children have walked labyrinths. And um, it's been a beautiful memory and image in my mind when we, you know what, I want to go on a labyrinth. Should we go on a labyrinth walk this yes. summer? Let's go explore the various labyrinths in the area. I have a, a whole list. Um, labyrinth field trip. Okay, that was a side note. We walk the labyrinth with fellow pilgrims, even as we are on our own journey, going at our own pace. Sometimes others outpace us. They're going at their own pace. We don't block them. We don't judge them. We observe. We silently, mindfully step off the path, let them pass, and continue on at our own pace, on our own timeline, on our own journey. I wonder if this labyrinth imagery could lend us those gifts of compassion and non-judgment for our journeys. Could it keep us from the crutch of comparison that stifles us, that keeps us from creativity, authenticity, and a sense of unconditional belonging? Could this imagery help us understand that we're not just beings who evolve and move beyond things? We need to begin again sometimes. We find ourselves in similar places that we've been before sometimes. We are people who return sometimes. Even in our text, they're on a journey, but by the end of it, they have returned to Jerusalem. We may get to the center only to find ourselves returning the way we came and then back again and again. Could all this movement be wisdom, not chaos? but wisdom. A labyrinth is so fitting, in my opinion, so representative of the journey of theology, of thinking about, learning about, considering the things of God. It represents the inner cultivation that sets us on our own authentic path of our own moments of divine connection. It's so necessary. But what brings all this thinking about, learning about, considering, and pondering to life? What brings it to life? What gives our faith legs or perhaps even eyes? In the Bible, there's many resurrection stories, many versions of the same story over and over again. This is what Jesus was doing for 40 days after the resurrection. He went around resurrecting people, resurrecting their faith and energy and hope. And we tell different versions of the story. This is the work of Easter. But what strikes me in our story from today's reading is this. It's not good theology that makes them see. Good theology is actually not that important, according to this story. Sure, eventually the scriptures resonate with them. um, But it's not good theology that makes them see Jesus. It's generosity, open minds and hearts on the journey, listening, stewing, being open to change, practicing the sacred practice of hindsight. (laughs) It's generosity, open doors, open table, inviting strangers in to dine. Most specifically, it was the communion moment that opened their eyes, that moved them into full awareness, the kind of awareness that would equip them not just to believe, but to embody, and to embody in community. They immediately left 
and returned to Jerusalem to be with their community. So it was the communion moment, the communal moment, the breaking of the bread, blessing blessing it, sharing it moment, that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. He vanished from their sight immediately. How annoying. (laughs) And yet that moment was enough to sustain their faith and build a movement that's been worthy of lasting thousands of years. And the same is true for us. So often it's not good theology, proper theology, right theology that makes us see, but it's life lived among the hands and feet of Christ around us. And so often our faith is increased, not by theology, but by community, by the people around us who love us and walk with us. And so like those ancient followers, that communion moment, is the moment for us, not the teaching moment. Like, like we did not even talk before this. <laughs> we, we never talk. <laughs> not anymore. Um, not the teaching moment. It's not the holy checklist moment. But the meaningful moments of community that give us energy to embody our faith. He had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's what the last line says. This is the story that those two went back, rushed back. Remember, it was nighttime. They were holed up. They were about to, they told them, stay, stay, it's the end of the day. But then they left. (laughs) They had to go and tell the others that he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I wish this for us. But so often I feel fear that we view our various cycles of faith as barriers instead of seeing each each season and cycle for what it is totally normal proof of our humanity to be expected and yet what happens when we drop the comparing and the micromanaging and the controlling and instead just focus on that cultivation so simple compassion non-judgment compassion, non-judgment. I think good health happens. I think healing happens because nourishment and care is happening. And healthy and helpful spiritual community is here, offering to take root in us and all the good spiritual resources God offers us. So may we plant our faith seeds not in the soil of good theology, but side by side in holy rows of communion. And then growth. And then bloom. And then death. (laughs) And then begin again. Amen.